You may be seated, and if the children can come on up for the children's lesson. There we go. We've been. You can sit right here, buddy. All right, we're walking through the Nicene Creed, and we're learning all kinds of really meaningful things. And we have a cool picture here I want you guys to take a look at as we talk a little bit about the Trinity. Do you know what the Trinity is? I don't God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. So let's repeat after me. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the giver of life. The Lord, the giver of life. Who proceeds from the Father... And the Son. All right. We have already said that the Father and the Son are both God, haven't we? Even though there is only one God, He is made up of three separate persons. This is called the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the third person of God. This can be really confusing. Sometimes a picture can help create some clarity. Look at the picture on the opposite side of the page. It's called the Shield of the Trinity. Christians a long time ago drew pictures like this to help them understand how God could be three persons and one God. Look at the symbol for the Holy Spirit. The symbol is a dove. Do you remember the story of when the Holy Spirit descended like a dove on Jesus? Now follow the line from the dove to the middle. The Holy Spirit is God. You see? If you follow the circle around, you will see that the Holy Spirit is not the Father and He is not the Son. However, together, all three make the one true God. The fullness of God is in each person of the Holy Trinity. Each member of the Trinity has a unique role. The Holy Spirit's job is is to comfort us and remind us to always to look to Jesus as our Lord. The Holy Spirit fills us with God's power. In the Holy Spirit, we are joined to God and to other Christians. All right, so let's say it once more. Are you ready? We believe in the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Son. Alright. Now you guys can can draw this picture on your own. Yeah? Alright. Well done. Go ahead and get back to your seats. Okay. Most everyone prays at least one time or another, but too often prayers fizzle out. We either stop praying because we get what we want or stop praying because the answer to our request is less than desired. Here in our gospel reading, Jesus speaks of the spirit for which we are to pray. Ironically enough, this spirit seems anything but holy. It seems more like hard-headedness or stubbornness or even selfishness. But what if the point of prayer is not as much about getting what we ask for 
as much as it is about persisting in prayer. If this is the case, then what seems to be hard-headedness and stubbornness and even selfishness is not that at all. Instead, it is trust and dependence, isn't it? As Paul describes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, it is God's gift of faith and love in Christ Jesus. This is the connective tissue of our relationship with God Himself. Faith and love in Christ Jesus. And that is why Jesus gives us this instructive parable on prayer, because if we do not persist in prayer, then we miss the point, the main point. We ultimately pray not for our fleeting moments, but for the eternal moment. And so this topic of prayer is not unrelated to Paul's words to Timothy in our epistle reading this morning. We've been walking through 2 Timothy. The first chapter we learned that we must not neglect the gift of God, but to nurture and to develop the gift of faith and love in Christ Jesus. In the second chapter, we learn of how we must pass on this gift of God by rightly handling the word of truth. Literally, by cutting straight through to the gospel. Not by becoming distracted and divided on secondary issues, but by nurturing and guarding this good deposit from God. And in our epistle reading today, at the end of the third chapter, we learn that by continuing in this apostolic faith, which, we've been, with which we have learned, Paul says, and firmly believed, we will be complete and equipped for every good work. So in the remaining minutes, what I would like for us to do is to tie together these two passages, the Gospel and the Epistle reading. So I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel reading in your bulletin. And we will occasionally be referring to the Epistle reading as well. My overarching question is this. How then are we to practice this apostolic faith? How are we to practice this apostolic faith that we have received so that we might be complete and equipped for every good work? Let us pray. Almighty God, open up our hearts and our minds. Fill them with faith and love. That we might persist in prayer. That we might cling to the trustworthy promises that are found in Your Word. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So how then are we to practice this apostolic faith that we have received? What are we to practice so that we might be complete and equipped with every good work? The first thing that we are to practice is 
prayer. We are to persist in prayer. Jesus tells us immediately the point of the gospel reading. It is that we ought to always pray and not lose heart, he says. Then he proceeds with a story to drive home the significance of this point. He does this by telling the story of a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Yet look at what this unrighteous judge decides to do because of the because the widow doesn't stop pleading for help. He says in verses four and five, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. The logic of this is this. If an evil man can give justice and mercy to one who is persistently pleading for his help, how much more can God, who is good and true, give justice and mercy to those who persist in their prayers? A diamond is always more brilliant with a black backdrop. Light is always more noticeable when it pierces darkness. You see, Jesus is revealing the goodness of God and the significance of persistent prayer. There is much more than the works of the widow here. This parable is about God willingly and gladly works for his elect. It is because of God's goodness that we must always pray to him and never lose heart. There is only goodness and good news for those who persist in praying to God. Do you see the character behind the characters? Do you see God, the good one, who willingly and gladly works for those who truly cry out to him? This is why Christ says in verse 7, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? You see, persistent prayer is the eternal sign of God's saving grace. If persistence obtains so much from an evil person, then how much more will it obtain from God who is gracious, merciful, and just? Prayer is essential for the Christian life. It is non-negotiable. Christ said that my Father's house shall be called a house of prayer. And out of all the questions that the disciples could have asked Christ... What did they ask him? Teach us to pray. Not to be leaders, not to be wise, not to be articulate, but to pray. It is prayer that gives witness of change and conversion. Look at what we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 11. And the Lord said to Ananias, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. If we do not pray, we can be sure that we will not be changed. We must not neglect to persist in prayer. Hosea wrote that when Israel was in the battle of Gebeh, the children of iniquity could not overtake her. As a new believer in 1999, I remember discovering this passage and discovering the double meaning of the word Gebeh. It doesn't simply mean the northern kingdom of Israel. 
It also means praise. I remember committing to living in continual praise so that I might not be overtaken by the enemy. I remember making a commitment to live in continual praise so that I might do what the Apostle instructs Timothy to do. To continue and firm to, 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 to continue and firmly believe in this apostolic faith. Yes, we must commit to persist in prayer and thanksgiving. It's much easier to pray and to give thanks than to continue to pray and give thanks. It's much easier to believe the Holy Scriptures once than to regularly be nourished by them. Everyone prays when they're in crisis, when they're filled with fear. But to pray continually requires not fear, but faith. We must not lose heart. We must not be like Jacob, who was filled with fear upon Esau's return. We must not be filled with fear when Christ returns. We must be filled with faith. We must be people with great chests, as C.S. Lewis describes in his celebrated book, Abolition of Man. He says, we cannot castrate the gelding and bid it be fruitful. You see, the only way to persist in prayer is to have a heart for God. We must learn of His goodness. As Paul describes to Timothy, we must be taught, reproved, corrected, and trained in righteousness. You see how the Holy Scriptures are the way that gives us this love for the Lord. We must cling to the trustworthy promises of God in Christ Jesus. We must have a heart for God. We must be filled with faith. If we wish to be complete and equipped with every good work, then we must profit from the God-breathed Scriptures. Yes, God must breathe into our hearts so that we persist in our prayers. So let us measure our faith by measuring our prayer life. Are we firmly believing in this apostolic faith handed down to us? Do we persist in prayer? Do we enjoy communing with our Lord and our Savior? Or are we simply concerned with hurrying and completing our prayers? Notice how often the heart is mentioned in the worship service, in our liturgy. Whether it be the summary of the law, whether it be the collect of purity, and there are many other instances where the heart is mentioned. We must have a heart for God if we be ready for His return. We cannot wish to persist in prayer if our hearts be only half full. And we cannot be, wish to be ready for His return if our hearts not be full. We must know our neediness and we must know His goodness and His power. So let us renew our commitment to persist in our prayers. Let us utilize the Holy Scriptures in praying. 
Let us join with the psalmist in offering our laments and our praise to the Lord. Second, we must have the end in sight. If we are to faithfully hold on to the apostolic faith and to be complete and equipped for every good work, then we must have the end in sight. First, God is the God who will not remain far, but will draw near to his elect. He did not remain far in the Old Testament. He drew near in the New Testament, and he will come near still in the last days when his elect receives everlasting justice. Listen to how Jesus ends this parable on persistent prayer. He speaks of his glorious return. We must persist in prayer because Christ will return. Christ asked the question in verse 8, Will the Son of Man find faith on earth when he appears? You see, Christ's return has something to do with us persisting in our prayers. If we have not the end in sight, then we know not the one for whom we should be praying to. Why should we have confidence and strength to persist in prayer if we have no sight of Christ's powerful return? Notice how Paul also has this end in mind as he instructs Timothy on how to complete and equip the church. He tells him that a time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine or sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, he says. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Just as a vision of Christ's return will motivate one to persistently pray, so will knowledge of the many who will turn away in the last days make one vigilant, studious, and prayerful in handling the word of truth. Yes, we must have the end in sight so that we are watchful and dutiful and saved. Christ will return for those who will persist and He will give them justice speedily, Jesus says. Second, when we keep the end in sight, we are reminded of not only God's majestic return as King, but also of His most loving election. This is the one who God cares for. This is... These are the ones who Christ died for, his elect. And when Christ returns, we will see his elect. This beautiful doctrine ought to encourage our devotion and our diligence. Look at what, he, what we see in verse 7. We read that God will give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. These are the ones whom Paul describes will continue and firmly believe in verse 14. These are those who will be made wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ in verse 15. These are them who by God's breath will they be taught, reproved, corrected, trained in righteousness, made complete and equipped for every 
good work in verses 16 and 17. The 17th article of religion states that everlasting purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world were laid, he has constantly decreed by his counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation through whom he has chosen in Christ out of mankind and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation. You see, this doctrine of election is something that we cherish as Anglicans, as it's in our founding documents, the Articles of Religion. Just as God chose to free Israel from bondage, He has chosen to free the children of God. This is a doctrine that ought to be cherished. Every true believer gives God praise and thanksgiving because of this truth. After all, it is audacious, it is audacious to believe that we are chosen by God unto salvation, is it not? Child of God, you may find yourself doubting your salvation. If that is so, consider the love of God in Christ Jesus. Consider he who went to the uttermost parts for you to take your place and your punishment. Remember that you could have never called upon him if he had not first called upon you. Just as he chose Abraham and Moses, David and the disciples, he has chosen you, child of God. Not because of the work of man, but because of the work of Christ. Some may challenge this doctrine, but every believer who knows this, his great love, the great love of his, this blessed God who has chosen them, will find great joy in this doctrine. If we be the elect, if we be his disciples, if we be his children and his church, then we must cry out to him day and night. We must be people of prayer like that of the early church. Notice that they did not just devote themselves to prayers in Acts chapter 2, but they devoted themselves to the prayers. There's a definite article before prayers. You see, if we wish to be people of prayer, then we must learn how to pray. And how else can we learn how to pray than by reading the Scriptures prayerfully? We have in them an entire book devoted to prayer, the Psalms. If we are to persist in our prayer, then it must be coupled with God's Word. We do not need to pray perfectly, but if we truly believe, we must truly pray. Yes, we must be people of prayer. If we are not, then we must not expect to have salvation. You see, prayer is a serious issue. It is not only essential, but it's revealing. It reveals our hearts. So do you find your heart to be convicted today? Do not turn away from praying. Turn to Christ in praying. Prayer exposes who we are and it invites us to believe in Christ. 
for our salvation. Do we believe? For when we cross that heavenly threshold, we will not, we will yet persist in prayer. But it will not be like it is now. We will not persist like that of the widow, continuously crying out for justice against her adversaries. There will be no adversary on that day. The persistence of our prayer will not be driven by suffering and injustice. It will not be driven by our neediness even. Rather, on that day, it will be driven completely and totally by the knowledge of God's goodness. For He will be forever in complete adoration and communion with Him proclaiming the wonder of His glory. So let us persist in our prayers. Let us persist in prayer now that we will gloriously persist in prayer then. Amen.